Um, me and my partners were bootstrapping the business for really the kind of first year. I mentioned, you know, the kind of insurance and real estate industry complexities that we knew we had to tackle. And so we we spent almost a year, maybe maybe even a little more than a year, kind of getting that stuff out of the way, you know, because we knew it was absolute critical path, but we could kind of focus on before we raised capital from outside investors. And then once we raised capital, we went into a different mode of just, you know, like absolute pedal to the metal, knowing that the clock was now sort of ticking. My name is Parag Sarva, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Rhino. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lapart, and today how Parag Sarva created the security deposit alternative that's easy on your mind and your wallet. All this and more on Code Story. Parag Sarva is a New York City native. He grew up in Queens and went to college at NYU. When he started his career, he didn't think about going into tech. And in 2004-2005 timeframe, he did what most people did or tried to do. He went to work for Goldman Sachs to learn the financial services world. Though he was good at his job, he quickly realized that he didn't love it. And he moved on to work for Mike Bloomberg when he was mayor at City Hall. It was after this that he was introduced to and fell in love with the startup world. He's married with two kids, and during the pandemic, he found that one of the early telltale signs that people were getting panicky was the line of cars backed up to get into, you guessed it, Costco. He loves to cook, and actually he and some friends would get together occasionally to have ice cream club, which had one rule. You had to make the ice cream. As a renter and a landlord, Parag intimately felt the pains on both sides of the equation when it comes to security deposits. Rather than people stuffing large amounts of cash into a system that doesn't help either side, he knew there was a better way to help renters and landlords. This is the creation story of Rhino. Rhino's a company for renters. Our flagship product is a insurance policy that replaces uh, the need for um, a renter to pay a cash security deposit when they move in. If you've ever rented a home or know somebody who's rented a home, um, you are probably all too familiar with you know the kind of age-old requirement of paying a cash security deposit up front. Um, it's oftentimes one month or sometimes even more. So if you're renting a place for say $2,000 a month, you have to come up with first month's rent, 2,000 bucks, security deposit, another 2,000 bucks, and, and oftentimes some other you know, moving fees and expenses to, to actually settle into your new home. It's extraordinarily expensive. That cash deposit is the bit that we deal with. We've essentially replaced that $2,000 deposit with a security deposit insurance policy um, that costs as little as $8, 10 or maybe $12 to the renter per month in lieu of having to fork over that $2,000 cash security deposit. So it's a way for renters uh, and landlords to really transact in a much more modern, efficient way in 2021 versus, you know, just 
putting cash into really what is a individually segregated escrow account that sort of just sits on the sidelines and, and does nothing for anyone really for the life of that lease. The challenges, you know, really lie in that both real estate and insurance, you know, the other kind of vertical or industry we, you know, squarely um, participate in are both very, very long-standing, deep and complex industries that have been a little bit further behind the technology adoption curve. And so making headway into that, you know, really, I think, has been um, a, a complex process for, for, for us over the last five years. Where we started, you know, I actually went on uh, through some other turns to end up in real estate managing a couple hundred rental homes um, in the New York metro area on behalf of some private investors. So it was really living and breathing, you know, not just the renter side, of course, which I had been personally familiar with for many years, but the landlord property manager side of the um, real estate rental market firsthand. You know, to me, this was one of the big challenges dealing with qualifying renters um, and, you know, the cash exchanges um, that are required, which are just part and parcel of, I think, how the business works. And so it was really born out of a gap I felt, you know, we could do better on for our portfolio around, you know, managing those risks and relationships better um, from a landlord and property manager point of view and realizing that cash was just so burdensome, quite frankly. I can go to a farmer's market and buy apples, you know, with my iPhone, right? Um, using Square and, and whatever else. Um, whereas, you know, to do a, a very large dollar transaction, you know, with a renter, you know, it was far more uh, difficult um, and far less tech enabled. And then um, talking with friends and, um, you know, peers in the community. Um, and by in the community, I mean other real estate owners and property managers around, you know, hey, I experienced this challenge with deposits and managing cash. What do you think? Um, and, and realizing that this opportunity to apply really what has been done in other industries, you know, for 10 years now um, to this space and this transaction. And the, and the answer was yes. You know, it was something that people would be on board with and do. Um, and then, and that's when we realized, like, look, we didn't have just an opportunity to solve, you know, what we thought was a problem, you know, a mouse problem for, you know, me and, and the couple hundred homes, you know, I managed, um, but rather to build a large scale business that could really impact how people experience renting and, and literally save up to 50% for people at moving. Well, tell me about the MVP. Tell me about that first product you built, how long it took you to build, and what sort of tools you used to bring it to life. I sometimes think about it as having the kind of good fortune of starting this business, um, you, you know, after having seen a lot and, and done a lot, you know, being, you know, I don't know, 35 roughly. Um, me and my partners were bootstrapping the business for really the kind of first year. There was so much kind of work. I mentioned, you know, the kind of insurance and real estate industry complexities that we knew we had to tackle. And so we 
we spent almost a year, maybe maybe even a little more than a year, kind of getting that stuff out of the way, you know, because we knew it was absolute critical path, but we could kind of focus on before we raised capital from outside investors. We kind of very much had the business set up or the early days set up as to before and after fundraise. So we did as much as we could um, to identify our insurance partners, identify our first customers, yeah, you know, and all that um, before, you know, actually building an insurance product. It's a sort of complex regulated, you know, insurance policy that, that we wrote from scratch. And then once we raised capital, we went into a different mode of just, you know, like absolute pedal to the metal, knowing that the clock was now sort of ticking. Um, there would be lots of pressures and measurements of, you know, performance. Um, from that point forward. You know, Brian Woods, who's, you know, one of my business partners and our CTO. So Brian was um, one of the most talented engineers I'd ever worked with, who became a friend of mine because we both worked um, for this online dating startup um, many years ago. He was instrumental in helping us kind of think about how to build uh, an MVP product. And so we had a mad dash over 90 days from roughly May 2017 to, you know, August, late August 2017, where we built a entire product experience from front to back with Brian as our one and only full-time engineer and CTO and an offshore engineering team that was a large team of freelancers that he managed maniacally um, to deliver our first transactions beginning August 2017. We were able to do that because of you know, the sort of trust and, and, you know, teamwork that we had for having, you know, a team with pre-existing relationships, but also just like really leveraging a lean framework to um, ship something as fast as possible. In those early days, you talked about, you know, utilizing that lean framework and shipping fast. And you have to go through, to make that happen, you have to go through certain processes to make decisions and trade-offs about, you know, what you're going to cut in the short term or what you're going to build in the short term and, you know, what you're going to accept from a product slash technical debt standpoint. So tell me about some of those decisions and trade-offs in particular and how you cope with those. I mean, those early days, I think it was really around prioritizing sort of what, you know, the minimum was um, from a customer experience perspective that we would feel good about delivering in the market. And that meant that renters needed a 100% digital experience to understand and purchase and buy security deposit insurance um, nearly instantaneously, right? Nearly instantly. You know, it was a short sign-up flow um, that still, you know, r roughly remains, um, you know, today that lets a renter purchase security deposit insurance in under a minute. If you're used to um, a typical insurance underwriting review, quote, you know, bind, approval, and payment process. It uh, may feel like it's, it. why shouldn't it be a minute? Um, but, but I'll tell you, that's, that's not how, you know, for 100 plus years, the insurance world, um, you know, has been working. Um, I think fortunately, we've seen lots and lots of innovation to bring some of the more, you know, kind of typical mainstream products like homeowners or auto or, you know, those types of products to, to you know, a similar kind of instant quote and bind process. Um, but when you're kind of building a brand new category of insurance, security deposit insurance, um, that that was, you know, a major task from things on the front end that service renters, right, and, and that, that customers deal with um, up front to, 
you know, our landlord partners that are also instrumental to understanding and need to understand and receive documentation about sort of what the policy is and all, all that stuff. And then also, you know, a whole bunch of regulatory requirements on the back end. And so I, I share that because that's really kind of one of the things where we, you know, sort of chopped it up and said, like, look, wh which parts of this do we need to do today? And which parts can we kind of think about or worry about or iterate on later? We really, really focused on the front end consumer experience and anything that felt kind of below the line or to the back of the process, we built a pretty robust manual effort to address. That still tends to be how we think about, you know, solving problems is like, what is the right way to allocate resources today in a, you know, kind of resource constraint, budget conscious, priority driven way and, and understanding what those trade-offs are on, you know, product and eng versus, you know, other teams and efforts and type, types of, um, you know, efficiencies or lack thereof that may come from those decisions. So you've got the MVP, you know, major trade-offs and decisions. How did you progress the product from there? How did you move it forward and mature it? And I think what would be really interesting to hear is how you approached you know, building your roadmap and deciding, okay, this is the next most important thing to build. You know, I'd say kind of two things, and they may sound obvious, you know, um, but um, I think as you're kind of going through the motions, they're very, very kind of challenging to internalize, or at least for me, you know, have been challenging to internalize. And the first is confidence. What I mean by confidence is, is if put yourself in the mindset of, you know, trying to just decide, hey, I don't know, which landing page is better, landing page A or landing page B. You know, the classic sort of <laughs> story I, I always think about is, yeah, let's just run an A-B test and, you know, wait for the data to tell us. The truth is, when you're building a new business and delivering a new experience to people, it is oftentimes too long of a wait and to wait for the kind of perfect data set to tell you whether landing page A or landing page B is better. And you need to have kind of confidence in, you know, your hypothesis um, or hypotheses in every decision you're making. And so I would say just sort of confidently kind of moving through decision making for what to build and why is a critical, has for me has been a critical point because the data is not always available and may not actually be, you know, is something worth waiting for. And so that, that's not a way of saying, you know, it's not useful, but it's just the iteration cycles can be too long and you need to be really, really smart about what you're relying on data for versus what you're relying on, you know, your own kind of gut intuition and confident, you know, view on. From a more practical perspective, the second thing really has been thinking about automation and how can you automate more and more and more. And I think it's almost, um, I say, you know, this was the second thing I mentioned besides confidence is it's kind of, it's easy to say like, oh yeah, of course automation. But I think it shows itself in, you know, mysterious ways. And so, you know, I'm trying to think of an example, like an example I would think about is um, a company that I admire and, you know, I, I'll admit I'm somewhat addicted to also is Amazon. If you remember, you know, Bezos, I don't know, years ago at this point, maybe three, five years ago, was talking about at-home delivery at such speed because of the advent of drone technology. 
Everybody could wrap their heads around that, right? Like drones, yes, hard technology, new improvements, flying little, you know, manless aircrafts, delivering packages in your backyard across suburban America, wonderful. That's not actually what's happened in the last three to five years. You know, I know, I know drones has progressed, you know, quite magically, um, and somebody else will, you know, come on to Code Story and tell us all about that. Um, however, the thing that I'm absolutely fascinated by is they still have somehow magically delivered, you know, next day delivery for a six pack of toothpaste and a kid's baseball glove that, you know, I ordered last night. Right. And it's through an amazing amount of workflow automation and technology that's gone into what is a massive operations and logistics question and challenge. And that is how I think about, you know, some of the success of Amazon. It's not in a headline, you know, spaceship taking off from Earth kind of problem solving with technology, but there's many, many ways to get at, you know, the answer if you really apply automation and some of these other things as broadly or as efficiently as you can possibly think about them. Let's switch to team. So tell me how you went about building your team and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? I think there's probably two, two things that it comes down to. I'd say this is kind of the most challenging part of building a company because you very quickly realize, or I very quickly realized, I should say, despite any talents, you know, that I had or, or my business partners had, you know, we were only a team of, you know, three, four or five, um, you know, at the beginning. But in order to impact the kind of change and, and scale, you know, that we wanted, I, I very quickly learned that my marginal contribution, you know, um, would be greatly diminished in, in terms of a one out of five, one out of 10, one out of 50, you know, perspective. And so we're, you know, about 225 people today, 225 rhinos across the country. I think it comes down to two things and, and trying to really kind of suss these out. Um, one is trust. The second is, you know, understanding gaps in yourself and in the team and in the kind of organizational design, what those gaps are and solving for them. With respect to trust, I think that's where really I think it lets you as a leader or as, a, you know, um, a company executive start to let go a bit of needing to be, or for me, needing to be involved in kind of every decision day to day or week to week or month to month. And, you know, with, with each of the teams and each of the business processes and, and really having confidence in others um, and their abilities and in their decision-making ability to drive things forward in a way that you would um, like to be driven forward. And I think then it really kind of ties into that second point around understanding the gaps better than driving things forward the way that you would like it to be driven forward is the ability for folks to make decisions that are literally just smarter, better, faster, you know, than things you would have done. I don't think that that really comes from, you know, or, or I should say, I think that it really does come from, for me, a sort of root or attempt to understand, you know, what my own skills are and what the gaps I have are around those skills and those of our team. And so we, we often kind of talk about, you know, our 
um, management team today is, you know, eight folks. You know, this is the team that's going to win the game. It's not about what are, you know, the things that we're pointing out to each other that where we fall short in terms of, you know, kind of criticizing. Um, but it's really about like identifying those gaps to help each other kind of fill them in in order to get to the right business outcome. So I think it comes to, you know, these two issues. One is about kind of an emotional trust, and then the other is around complementary skills um, and recognizing where gaps are for me personally and also the kind of team we've put together. Well, then let's switch to scalability. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one, or have you been fighting this as you've been growing? I think it's a constant battle. I'd love to understand what it looks like to build something to scale from the starting point. Because um, to me, it's a little bit at odds with the, the sort of level of prioritization or, or what I feel kind of focus that we've needed to kind of just get to the next gate. You know, in order for us to kind of really maniacally focus, for example, in those first kind of 90 days on shipping a customer experience that would resonate and land with um, both renters and landlords using our product, that meant there were a whole host of things that we had to ignore up front. And I think that kind of attention and focus is critical to giving it our all, you know, for each phase of the business and, and prioritizing and reprioritizing almost daily, you know, in the fight and creates some byproducts of, oh man, this thing, you know, is not scaling efficiently. You know, last summer, for example, we were talking about COVID-19 a little bit. You know, it was really, really interesting. We had this very, very clear view before COVID-19 really kind of set on um, the U.S. So think kind of February 2020, that because of the nature of our business, we, we partner with landlords and property managers and educate them on, you know, the benefits of accepting security deposit insurance with Rhino, you know, up front that we knew, you know, kind of in the winter, right, February 2020, that the summer leasing season was gonna be just an absolutely sort of crushing volume for us, given all of the new relationships we put into place over the past kind of three to six months. Um, and then we kind of were forced because of the pandemic to sit on our hands a little bit. And we just watched it happen, actually. It was interesting because it didn't show up in exactly the same way we thought it would. Um, and if you remember, there was a very uneven set of impacts across the country, you know, through 2020 and especially those early days. But our business, you know, doubled, tripled and so on. And we were just sort of sitting in our hands, kind of thinking about like, well, what should we invest in? Should we invest more in people? Should we be building better processes to support scale or is it all just going to be for nothing? Is it, you know, just going to kind of be totally flat for the rest of the year? And that was a really interesting kind of moment because even now looking back, I'm not sure what the right call would have been um, or if we made the right call, but, you know, we definitely were not set up for scale yet, you know, last summer. Um, and thankfully, obviously, you know, we've, we've kind of, we muscled through it and the team did a phenomenal job responding to, yeah, you know, the volume we started receiving that summer. Um, and, and we've kind of come clear out the other side, but um, it, it was a pretty stressful time for, for us. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? 
the first is uh, I'm, I'm still I'm still happy and in love with you know my my job and and for me you know the reason I've kind of had all these different kind of stops um, in, in in my career um, was just just kind of not really feeling like it was it thankfully now you know I have been building this business for longer than I've done anything else you know in the almost kind of 20 years that I've been working professionally and so that's a very very good kind of rewarding feeling to know that I'm kind of heading on the right track personally for myself and then I would say is really around kind of the fulfillment for that comes from being able to help people it's been you know kind of an important thing that I've gotten closer and closer to thinking about and, and wanting to spend time doing and so what I mean by that is you know we've we've now and you know, the last four years saved renters over $400 million in, in upfront moving costs, um, which is a huge number. That it, That is a, yeah, you know, I sometimes think about it as how would I think about my time inside government versus outside government? Yeah, you know, I feel pretty strongly that the last few years has been more impactful for other people, you know, compared to my prior many years. And we've also passed two laws, um, you know, not something we talked about, but I think it's pretty amazing to see kind of the intersection that we've kind of become involved in um, between not just real estate, technology and insurance, but really between the public sector and the private sector. And the very fact that we are so tied into helping renters save money um, at a time where 40% of Americans don't have $400 saved for an emergency. Just think about that statistic for a moment, $400 saved for an emergency. That's not about rent or homeowner. That's like 40% of the 350 some odd million people not having $400 for an emergency. This is a critical thing. Housing affordability is a, is a major topic that has only been you know heightened due to the pandemic. And so we um, have been able to work successfully with a number of mayors and legislators across the country to start thinking about how technology can truly update renting and help people. And so in the past year, year and a half, we've passed two laws. Um, we've seen two laws passed in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, and Atlanta, Georgia, um, which we believe are really important steps towards bringing innovation to bear in ways that I, I don't think we've seen, you know, the public sector really kind of respond or take advantage of. So specifically those two laws, it's called the renter's choice uh, law, which gives renters options at move-in. So instead of just having to plunk down, you know, what often feels like your life savings um, when you're signing a lease for your next home, you have a couple other options. One of them is you can pay in installments, um, typically, um, or you can buy insurance. Um, and so for me, it's really just a way of introducing more and more education and awareness for, you know, choices that should be made available for, you know, every renter in the country. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. I often think about myself um, as, um, quite frankly, a pretty dry B2B guy, you know? <laughs> I think that shows up in all sorts of ways, um, you know, and kind of choices that, I, that I've made or continue to make. And I think that early on, I was absolutely sort of shocked and surprised to see what the response was like from renters um, when we first kind of hit the market in August 2017. It started by, 
you know, renters emailing us because at the time, you know, we, we were really only available by email to renters. Now, of course, we're smarter than that and, and you know, phone and live chat and any, any way you want to find us, you can find us. But we would get renters writing in stories about just what the cash savings meant to them. I got to say, you know, it's some of the most emotional stories about families that, you know, suddenly were afforded this opportunity to save $1,200 at move-in, which meant, you know, they could repurpose that money and spend it on, you know, other needed household expenses or savings or education or travel or investing. And the stories just kind of kept coming in and in. Um, and that's when, you know, I realized we had made a mistake in thinking about the business and, and as really like a services business for the real estate market. And really that if you kind of zoom out and take a step back, you know, the entire rental marketplace is driven by those 110 million renters. They're the ones who are paying for everything, so to speak, right? And so what we realized was the future of renting would really be defined by what the experience and value is of those 110 million renters and aligning, you know, not just ourselves, but with owners and property managers and other, you know, sort of folks in the space that really understand that was a very fundamentally different kind of thing for us. And so I, I didn't have that view on day one, and I'll admit that that was a early learning for me, which was really fundamental to, you know, kind of how we've built the company over the last few years. Well, this is an exciting question. I always love asking this one. What does the future look like for Rhino, the product, and for your team? Oh, that's an easy one. It's uh, deposit free. I, I think um, I'm looking forward to, you know, five years from now where, you know, 110 million renters rent uh, by default with deposit insurance and cash, you know, becomes the exception. Um, I think more broadly speaking, I think just as, you know, we've seen a transformation in, you know, supply chain logistics that lets you get, you know, that um, uh, toothpaste and baseball glove, you know, 18 hours after you order it delivered to your doorstep, <laughs> there are going to be a host of uh, developments and changes that really deliver um, renters a much more seamless leasing and moving experience that just just helps gives them more of what they deserve transparency in a customer driven process and and recognition that my view is the the future of urban America and certainly kind of the way cities are playing out is renting is more and more going to become the norm just broadly speaking um, it, it will no longer be kind of second place to home ownership um, as folks are making more and more active choices around renting well, let's switch to you, Parag. Who influences the way that you work? You know, name a CEO, a CTO, an architect, really any person. Name a person you look up to and why. I don't think I um, ever really had a good answer for this type of question until um, very, very uh, recently. You know, I, th I think it may sound a bit hokey, but I think it really is my, my parents, my mother and my father. I think it's taken me having kids to experience and understand a lot of the trade-offs and sacrifices and decisions they've made in, in their life, much of which we've, I've never really even talked about with them. But I think, you know, they moved here as immigrants after having an arranged marriage in 1972 from India. 
really with not much other than a incredibly strong work ethic and commitment to chase the American dream. The approach they took and, and continue to take towards prioritizing what's important to them um, and you know the gusto that they approach work with um, I think is something that's really kind of impacted me um, and, and again I don't even think I really realized it until probably the last few years um, seeing how they you know kind of were entrepreneurs and you know in their own right um, building very different style businesses but um, uh, lots and lots of lessons I can I can think about um, you know from even you know when I was small um, kind of just seeing the way they did things so I, I would give them I think probably the most credit in terms of impacting why why I work or think about things you know um, in my career the way I do now Well, we talked about a mistake, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? One of the things I've always been most most displeased with is um, complacency. You know, feeling like whether in myself or in others or in processes, feeling like, you know, this feeling of kind of complacency was sort of setting in or taking hold of, of you know, outcomes. And so I think, you know, that I would apply that or, or think about that, um, and I often do think about that, is I think we could have iterated even more and been even more focused on kind of truly identifying like what is the kind of best in class way for this thing to kind of work. There's no set one set kind of piece of our business or company where I see that, but it's become something I've just gotten so focused on is just incremental improvement and looking to kind of deliver an even better outcome. You know, I think that that's something that some of the kind of earlier decisions that we made, um, we maybe could have benefited from being even more maniacal about iterating more aggressively. And to use a current example, um, we've moved, you know, now we're kind of 225 people, um, the vast majority of which, almost 175 of which we've hired you know, in the last 12 months through the pandemic, um, have um, a fully remote team. We were not a fully remote team before the pandemic, though. We were 50 people in an office, largely all in an office in New York City. Bridging that gap, you know, I think is still something, or bridging that transformation is still something we are working through. One of the things that I, I have found myself drawn towards, which um, I think is critically important, is getting the culture building right in a remote setting. And, and I don't think there's, you know, a lot of precedence for it, obviously, given kind of dramatic change over the last year or two. I've been very, very focused on even something as simple as like, what, what do our weekly stand-up meetings look like at the company? We have a half-hour meeting every Friday afternoon, you know, which used to be for 10 people, then 20 people, then 50, now 225. What's the format of that meeting and how do we make sure we're delivering value and the right kinds of information to this growing rhinoverse, right? And so that's something where I think just kind of iterating um, for, you know, better, better, better is, is really what keeps me up at night. Well, last question, Parag. So, so you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? I think there's um, two things 
I, I would give this person sitting on the plane. Um, the first is put your mask back on. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. That's not the first one, but small, small pandemic joke. Um, the two things really, I think, are one, understanding what what you want. And, you know, it's intentionally a pretty broad phrasing to that statement because I think it's um, a very difficult question for people to answer. What I have seen is as you kind of start scaling and having success and hitting milestones, there's more and more options that become available. And there are, and this is really the important part, there are more and more people who will try to influence and align you with what they want as if it's something you want. And I think that that's a very, very kind of slippery or challenging thing to think through because it may be friends, it may be family, it may be advisors, it may be investors, it may be employees or business, but it could be come from any kind of direction of folks, customers like that you interact with. But what is it that you kind of want out of, you know, your time um, and, and your investment in the business um, in all of the manifestations of, of that word investment? So I think that that's one critically important one. And then the second is, I think, something I didn't really quite realize is just if part of what you want includes you being, you know, kind of the CEO uh, of that business for, you know, for the rest of its days or your days is to really understand that it's not one job and that you may have one title, but the number of jobs and iterations of yourself that you need to grow through and push through and develop through is many times greater than you know what what you think at the outset and so that's something you know which i have found to be incredibly um uh yeah you know true and and requires a lot of effort and energy to kind of reinvent almost your working style or you know the version of the ceo essentially um, in order to give the company what it needs to kind of get to that next place and so just being conscious of that and knowing it's not all you know, hugs and kisses, I think, is, uh, yeah, you know, incredibly important. Well, that's, that's fantastic advice. Well, Parag, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Rhino. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.